hear me? Okay. I think we need to pray before we look at this piece of scripture together. What do you think? <laughs> okay, would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is true. All of it is true. And your word is for your people. And so, Lord, today as we look at this piece of scripture, Lord, we ask for a fresh vision of your glory. Lord, it's no good me speaking. We need you to speak through your Holy Spirit. And you need to open our eyes, Lord, our eyes that dimly see you now. We want to see more of you, Lord, as we sang this morning. Show us, show us your glory, Lord. And prepare our hearts to receive your truth, all of your truth this morning. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I want to begin looking at this scripture together by asking you a question, and that is, have you ever been in a situation where you are longing to be rescued? I don't know, maybe you're in that situation right now, struggling, suffering, going through some kind of major hardship, and you really can't see a way out. Well, actually, that was the situation of the early church of the day that this book was written. They were surrounded, and we've looked at it before, but they were surrounded by enemies. They were in a, a culture. They were led by a, um, and they were in an empire that really hated them, hated their faith, and it was a cruel culture, and they were suffering for their faith. In fact, John, who wrote this book, was a very old man living on the island of Patmos, breaking apart stones every day because of his faith. So there's great, great suffering. And so it's into this, this sense of suffering that this message comes like a beacon of hope. Jesus is coming back. Your true king is coming, and he is coming to rescue you. And he is coming to make everything right. And actually, this is a message we really desperately need to hear today. Because we are suffering. We learned last week from Mike, we are struggling against Babylon, living in the midst of it, struggling against its very strong enticements, the way that the, the beliefs of Babylon can begin to permeate our own thinking. But not only that, we struggle against our own sin and the sin of other people. And the church today is suffering, more probably than at any other time of history. We don't really feel it as much here where we're Heart protected, we have lots of freedoms. But in many, many parts of the world, people are literally dying, being tortured and dying for their faith as we speak right now. And so we need hope, and that's what this message gives us this week. And this ver these verses are not a fairy tale of a knight in shine shining armor coming to rescue his maiden and slay the dragon. This is real. This is actually um, what we've been waiting for for two, more than 2,000 years, since that day when the disciples went and saw Jesus rise and the angels said to them, men of Galilee, why are you looking, standing and looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back to you the same way. And all of history has been waiting for that day ever since, longing for that day. And so today we actually get the joy of beholding our king, what he looks like, as he comes back in great majesty. But I don't know, maybe for you, the idea of Jesus returning fills you with more of a sense of dread. Certainly these verses fill us with a slight sense of dread as we read some of what it says. 
And so today, my prayer for all of us is we're going to get a fresh vision of God's glory as we look at these verses, as we unpack them together, but also that we will realize that we do not have to fear the return of Jesus. That way we can have great joyful anticipation as we sang this morning, didn't we? So love the worship this morning as we sang of Jesus' return. But that these verses are very meaningful to us today because they give us hope, they give us strength, and they actually um, give us purpose. And so I'm going to unpack the verses for us in two major ways. First of all, we're going to look at Jesus' triumphant return and then his triumph over evil. So if you have Bibles, could you open them? Otherwise, you can follow along um, up there. And I, don't, I wonder if somebody wouldn't mind going and getting me a glass of water. I'm sorry, not all of you at the same time. Thank you. <laughs> For some reason, my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth. Okay, so let's begin here by looking at the verses. It says in uh, Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. Thank you. <laughs> so we're seeing that Jesus apparently is going to come back to us on a white horse. Now we're not sure if this is really, truly a, um, uh, a white horse, because there is, um, you know, lots of symbolism in, in, in Revelation. And in its day in Rome, riding on the back of a horse was symbolic of power and military success. And so a horse is a symbol of war, white is a symbol of victory, and so we see that this then symbolizes Jesus coming back as a warrior king. This is very different than the first time he came, isn't it? First time he came, he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in great humility because he was going to bring peace. He was going to go die on a cross for us so that we could have peace with God. But this time, when he comes, he's going to crash through the clouds as a mighty warrior, and he's going to come back for us, his bride. And so we see this immense imagery of Jesus in power coming back, and we're told that his name is Faithful and True. You know, I think this is just such an appropriate name because God, Jesus, is God and he is faithful. He always keeps his promises. He kept, we think, in the realm of over 300 promises the first time he came, and he's going to keep all of the rest of them, including this promise to return. He's true. He is truth. There is nothing false in our Jesus. Everything he says is true. All of his promises in the Bible, we can take them home, we can live on them, we can grow into them and know what he tells us is true. And because his name is faithful and true, we see he, has, he is the only one who can do the mission that he came to do, and that is clearly stated here, with justice he judges and wages war. He's come to wage war with Satan and with all the evil forces in this world and to bring justice and righteousness to make all things new. And because he is faithful and true, he is the only one who's able to do that. We cannot judge, only Jesus can judge. And so we see now this amazing description of him and I want to take some time just to take look at each of these things one by one because the overall impression for us is unbelievably amazing. First of all, in verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire. 
This tells us he has penetrating insight. He can see into us. He knows everything. Everything is laid bare before the eyes of Jesus, we're told in Hebrews. And so for, the, for us, this is both a delight and a complete terror. I don't know about you. A delight, a, a joy, because it means he knows everything about us, about me, about you, about all our hidden secrets that probably nobody else knows, and he still loves us so very much. But also kind of a terror, because it means we can't hide from him. And for me, that certainly stopped me in my tracks a few times as I've run into sin. Not often enough, I might add, but occasionally. <laughs> because knowing that maybe even though nobody else knows, my Jesus will know. But here's the thing. We don't have to try to hide our sin from Jesus. The one whose eyes are like blazing fire is saying, bring your sin to me. I want to take care of it for you. So he comes back with eyes like blazing fire. On his head are crowns, many crowns. And this isn't just some comical stacking of crowns on his head. This is, again, symbolic to show us that he has more crowns and therefore more right to rule than any other king or authority on heaven or on earth or under the earth, including Satan. So this is telling us he is the, he is the king. And you know, the first time he came, we put a crown of thorns on his head, didn't we? We spat on him. Next time he comes, he's wearing a crown, and we will throw our crowns at his feet in adoration and worship. So he has many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Now, I can't tell you how many um, pages have been written trying to figure out what this name is. But here's the thing, nobody knows, only Jesus and what this tells us is that there is a lot we know about Jesus, a lot we know about our God, but there is a lot we don't know. And we are going to have all of eternity to get to know him. We are in for such incredible joy, such incredible joy when, we, when we're with him. So that name that nobody knows, but where he's wearing, it says in verse 13, a robe dipped in blood. Now, some people say that since Christ is coming as a warrior, that this is the blood of his enemies. But I would say that it seems more likely that this is the blood of Christ himself. Revelation 7 tells us that the multitude washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb who died for them. So this tells us really, doesn't it? that this blood on Jesus' robe is his blood, just as those great high priests would sacrifice animals day after day after day, and their robes would become blood-soaked, their white robes would become blood-soaked. Jesus has his own blood on his robe because it's, that was the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. And so it reminds us then that when Jesus comes to judge, he comes with blood-soaked garments and nail pierced hands. His name is the word of God. This tells us that Jesus is God. You know, in the Hebrew language, it's not like our language. In the Hebrew language, a word isn't just a lifeless sound. It's actually an active force that accomplishes what the speaker intends. So when somebody speaks it, it accomplishes it. So Jesus is the word of God, means he's the active 
force of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. Jesus is God. He spoke the world into existence. He is the Word of God. So that's his name. And we, we see here that actually he doesn't come alone in verse 14. He's actually coming with an army. It says in verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. This is the church. That is because they're wearing the white garments of clean, fine, white linen. In actually earlier in chapter 19, we see in verse uh, 6 through 8, that there's this amazing thing called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we see that those that come to the wedding, the bride, they have been made ready by, they're given fine, white, bright, clean robes to wear. They're giving them by their bridegroom, Jesus. And so what we see here then is we're reminded that on the cross, there was actually a divine exchange. Jesus took, not only took, all of your and my filthy sin, all of our filthiness, our rags of sin. He also gave us his beautiful robes of righteousness. So the moment we believe in Jesus, that very nanosecond we believe that he died on the cross for us, he calls us beloved bride, and he wraps us in his robes, and he sees us as pure and clean. So let me tell you something right now. Remember what we sang this morning? That we are clean when we believe in Jesus. We are his bride and we are clean. We are wrapped in his robes of righteousness. So this army, this is the countless numbers of people who know Jesus. But do you notice something? They don't have any weapons. They just come with Jesus and they ride along behind him. So then we see that he's going to rule with an iron, sorry, he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth in verse 15. What does this mean? And he's going to use it to strike down the nations. Again, this really symbolizes the fact that his word is powerful. That when Jesus speaks, it accomplishes. His word is powerful. It can cut and divide, and it can deal with enemies. He only has to speak. He has all power and authority. And then we see that he is going to rule them with an iron scepter. This doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? <laughs> but here's the thing. What it means is he is going to be in complete control, but don't forget who we're talking about here now. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus, God, beautiful one, who has who is absolutely perfect and just and righteous. And so when he rules, it will be a beautiful kingdom of righteousness, something that we long for, actually. He's going to rule. That's what it means. He has absolute authority, and he will rule. And then in verse 9, we read something that is actually much harder for us. Sorry, in verse 15. He's going to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This winepress pictures the crushing of grapes. And it symbolizes the absolute crushing blow to people who don't, who reject Jesus. 
What this is telling us is that when Jesus comes back, those who reject him will be punished. And this is not easy for us to hear. I think we have to take a step back for a minute here and think of something. God hates sin. And it's really hard for us to understand how appalling sin is, is because we are sinners. We don't have a a correct understanding of it. But God is absolutely holy, and he created everything perfectly, created you and me for everlasting relationship with him in perfection. He created a perfect, beautiful world. But sin came into the world through Satan, and it destroyed what God wanted. It separated us from our Father. And so God hates sin for that reason, because it damages and destroys and separates and hurts us and other people. And he will punish it. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. He cannot turn a blind eye to it. He has to uphold his own character. So there has to be judgment. And so if this offends you, may I ask you, how do you feel, how do you feel when somebody who has committed some kind of an atrocious act gets off scot-free in our justice system? Does it offend you? Does it upset you? What about Hitler? What about Stalin, all the people they killed? Don't you want to see them come to justice? Of course we do. That is because we are created in the image of God, and we want justice. If so if we want justice, how much more does God want justice? So God is, is a just God, but let me tell you something else. God is also a merciful, kind, and infinitely loving God. And so he took all of that justice upon himself. It meets at the cross, doesn't it? All of his mercy and his grace and his justice at the cross. And he, when Jesus came the first time, all of that wine press of God's fury was poured out on Jesus, on his one and only son. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus has made a way for us not to have to face this wrath. And we are in the day of grace today. If today you turn in faith to Jesus and believe he died on that cross for your sin, you are forgiven. But one day, what we're talking about here is the, is the day of the Lord when he returns It's the day of judgment. And those who reject Jesus and are not covered in his robes of righteousness will have to pay the price. It's simple, really. Either Jesus pays it or we pay it. So there's great, um, I would say, great warning for us in these verses. But the final thing we see in here is that on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. It is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just Jesus is king. He is not going to become king when he comes back. He is king now, and he has authority over everything. And the first time they worshipped him mockingly, didn't they? Called him king of the Jews, spat on him, put a purple robe on him. 
next time he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they love him or whether they hate him. He is king. So this is Jesus. This is the one that's coming back. He is powerful. He is magnificent. He is glorious. And he's coming for us. He's coming back for us, the bride, his bride, the church. And so we see that in verses 7 to 8. We're told that he's going to come back, and we are going to have the most massive, incredible celebration. It's called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. And so we will, all of heaven and all of us, the church, we will be absolutely overjoyed that he's come back because when he comes back, he's, he's coming to finally be with us forever and ever and ever. I don't know about you, but I long to see Jesus. I long to touch him. I long to be with him. I long to talk to him. You know, it's great praying to him, but he has no skin on. <laughs> And he's going to come back visibly, physically, and we will be able to talk to him, and we will never be separated from him ever again. And this is what all of history has been working up to. All of history has been working to this one thing where God is reunited with his people, and this is what is being described here. And so we will rejoice I know it's hard for us to understand some of the things in here that sound painful. But when our Jesus comes back for us, believe me, <laughs> we will rejoice. Because not only is he going to come back to be with us, but he is going to make everything right. And that is what the rest of these verses are actually saying. What we see here in verse 19 is he's going to come throughout the rest is he's going to triumph over evil. That's what these verses are describing. It says in verse 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathering together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Apparently, they're all going to try and fight against the king of kings and the lord of lords. These are people that hate Jesus. But it's actually not really much of a battle at all. Because all that happens is Jesus simply speaks and all of the armies of the earth are defeated. It says right here, they are killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the sword. And then this beast and the false prophet, Satan, they are gathered and they are thrown into this lake of burning fire. What this is describing for us is the end of all evil. All evil. We're given this horrific description here. Let me just talk about it for a second. <laughs> Maybe your toes curled as you read about it. It's called the Great Supper of God. And, and the people that fight against uh, Jesus, all of the birds of the air come and feast on them. And this is given to us as a contrast, a horrific contrast, so that we can see the terrible thing that will happen to those who reject Jesus compared to the, those who joyfully welcome him. We are given the wedding supper of the Lamb and the great supper of God so that we will wake up to the reality, a really important reality for those who don't love him, for our loved ones who don't love him. It's given to us in a horrific way on purpose. 
It's, but I want to pull back because I want to say to you, this, what this is really describing to us now is the end of all evil, okay? The end of all evil in this world. No more evil. No more evil in government. No more evil, awful things happening in religion. No more evil anywhere, ever, ever again. This is describing to us the end of all things when Jesus comes back and makes a righteous kingdom. This has to be good news for us. And so the end of the story for us is Jesus wins. Sometimes, you know, when I'm reading a book, I'll be like, oh, it's too intense. I have to run to the end to find out how it ends, and I'll flip to the end and find out, well, the end, here's the end for us, the church. <laughs> Jesus wins. He's coming back. And while we don't understand everything, while maybe it makes us actually a little bit, maybe more than a little bit uncomfortable, can we pull away from it and understand this is good news for us. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back physically. He's coming back visibly. It's the next thing on the prophetic agenda. So we've looked at the verses. <laughs> and you might be thinking, wow, that's pretty heavy for Father's Day in 2019. <laughs> What does it mean for us? Sounds very surreal, doesn't it? Sounds hard to believe even. Sounds scary. Well, I would, say, I would like to pull out three things because I actually think this means everything to us. It has everything to do with our lives today. First of all, knowing that Jesus comes back gives us hope. It gives us hope that no matter how hard this life is, it is not the end of the story. You know, it's very easy for us to look around the world and think that evil wins. And who here doesn't long for the day when we don't have to open a newspaper and see all the abuse, all the pain, all the suffering, all the victimization, all the people that seem to be just going around scot-free, all the... How about the day when we don't have to struggle with our own sin? I long for that day <laughs> when uh, it's going to be easy for me to choose the right thing. It's going to be easy for me to be kind to other people. Um, it's going to be easy for us to get along. That there'll be nothing in the way between us. That we will have all eternity to be together because, and we will get along. <laughs> what this is telling us is that um, that day is coming. And so they remind us that no matter how hard, how hard this life is, no matter what injustice we are struggling or somebody we love is struggling or what we are going through, it is only temporary. And that Jesus is coming back and it helps us keep our eyes on the prize, give us hope as we're struggling. Because, you know, when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be boring. We're not going to sit around on clouds and play harps. <laughs> We're told in scripture, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has for those who love him. You know those glimpses of joy you have now? They're like playing in a mud puddle compared to what Jesus has for you. You know that feeling you get when you sing worship in church like this morning? That joy, that is just a gray shadow of what we're going to have when we're with Jesus. And we will have all of eternity to be with him, eat with him, talk to him, and be with each other. You know, God isn't a killjoy. 
We think that sometimes, don't we? God created joy, and he has such joy coming for us. So it gives us hope. So I don't know where you're suffering right now. Whatever you're going through, will you take this, and if nothing else, today, and understand Jesus is with you now, and Jesus is coming back for you. So the second thing, it, it tells us that not only is life not all there is, but this life is not all about us. So the second thing it does is it gives us purpose for living. You know, <clears throat> if our lives are not all about us, if our lives all are all about Jesus, which actually they are, whether you realized it or not, then his purpose for us has to be our highest and greatest aim. And as Mike reminded us last week, He's called us to be his ambassadors, to be a sweet aroma. When we go somewhere that people, that we would magnify God wherever we go, and that people would see him, that we would glorify him. Do you know what a magnifying glass does? Makes it easier to see something. When you can't see it very well, you put a magnifying glass there so you can see it. That's what we're called to do, to magnify God so that with our lives, other people can see God better, the way we live, what we do. So our choices really do matter. They don't matter so that we can earn something from God because we already have it all. We have it all. We are his bride. We are righteous in his sight. I'm going to say that over and over again because it's so hard for us to believe. But we are righteous in his sight. So we don't have to earn anything from him. But it's so that other people can see him. So that other people can be shown how to get out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So other people can be excited to have him come on a cloud. And, and when they bow the knee, they will want him, not be scared of him. So that gives us hope. It gives us purpose. But third of all, it has to give us motivation. Surely, as we've looked at these verses... The sobering part of this verse about what's going to happen to people who don't know Jesus. Won't it motivate us to tell others how to come to know him? We know the truth. There's only one way to spend eternity with Jesus through faith in him. We know that. And the most loving thing we could ever do for anybody ever is to tell them how to be saved. It's not kind to not tell people about Jesus. Their eternal destiny hangs in the balance. And so we have to tell them. We also have to show them with our lives. You know, there's a song I love on the radio. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it says, Let my life be the proof, the proof of your love. How you lived, how you died. May they see you in my life. And we need to pray <laughs> earnestly for people. Most, most of um, the kingdom work is actually done on our knees, to be honest. And prayer works. As I look down the aisleway of my family, who knows and loves Christ, after praying for them for so many years, prayer works. Keep praying. And this is actually, to be honest with you, this is our God-given work. Before Jesus went back to heaven, he said, go into all the world and make disciples. He didn't say hang about and have five cars and, you know, collect lots of money. He said, go into all the world and tell people 
how to be followers of Jesus. And he said, and I'm going to give you the power to do it. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And so we have the truth. We have the power. Will we have the courage? I know you know people who don't know Christ. I know people who don't know Christ. Will you show them? Will you live it out in front of them? Will you tell them? They need to know. And so, yes, absolutely, this truth about Jesus coming back, it gives us hope, gives us purpose, and it must motivate us. Jesus is coming back. It could happen, the Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye. It could happen this afternoon. <laughs> Are you ready to receive him? Do you know him as king? If you don't know him, if you don't know this Jesus yet, will you come and talk to me? Or you could right now, in, the, in your seat, you could say, I want you, Jesus. I believe you died for me. But church... Most of you here do know him as your king. And so let me just tell you something. You are ready to receive your king. You are ready right now because you are wrapped in his robes of righteousness. You are beautiful. And when Jesus comes back, you don't have to be afraid. He's coming to get you because he loves you. He is for you. He is not against you. He's coming to gather you to himself. And he's coming to have a wedding supper of the lamb with you. And so, I don't know if you've been scared for Jesus coming back. You do not have to be. Instead, can we, along with all of the church, say to Jesus, like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you, every heart longing for our king. Even so, come. Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Lord, your word is true, and you are beautiful, and when you come back, Lord, it is going to be breathtaking and magnificent, and our words fail, really, to be able to understand the glory of who you are and what it is going to be like when you come. But as your church, Lord, we say to you today, come, Lord Jesus, come. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to live for you to reflect you to others, and to have courage to share. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.